Then jumping down to verse 14 of John 1, we read that the Word, who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John begins his gospel by declaring the truth that Jesus is God, the eternal God, the creator God. He created everything. He has taken on human flesh and he has dwelt among us. Now, for those who haven't been with us through our study through John, we are studying as a church uh, through this gospel account, and we're up to John chapter 6 this morning, but already in the first five chapters, we have seen evidence to John's opening statement that Jesus is God. We've already seen three impossible miracles that testify that Jesus is God, the creating wine out of nothing, healing the nobleman's son, and healing the lame man, and actually the cleansing of the temple, four, if you were to count that, because that was a miracle on a vast scale. We've seen his omniscience time and time again. He has the insight into the state of men's hearts and men's minds and men's past. And from the lips of Jesus himself, he has testified that he is God. He did so at the end of John 5 when he boldly declared to the religious leaders that he deserves all the honour that they would give God, knowing that that would put the death sentence on him. And we also have looked at Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that proves that he is God. Now all of this John has provided for us as evidence to this opening verse, verse 1, that the word who dwelt among us is God. And I remind us of this week because I was reminded this week of a survey that I read out to us in our very first John study, and that's the State of Theology Survey. Uh, It's a survey, you can look it up online, but it exists because of Ligonier Ministries, and it basically surveys the state of theology within American evangelicalism. And last year's survey reported that 53% of evangelicals in America believe that Jesus Christ was a good teacher, but they don't believe that he is God. And 55% of professing evangelicals in America, believe that Jesus isn't eternally God, but he was God's first created being. I recall that to our minds because I want us to know that if there's anything we're to get out of our study through John's Gospel, it's that Jesus is God in human flesh. We're to be rock solid on that. That's Christianity 101. Without the deity of Christ, there is no Christianity. We're not believers in Christ if we deny that. And that's John's purpose for writing his book. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is, that Jesus is, was, and will always be eternally God, the Son. And in believing that, we may have life in his name. That's John 20, 31. 
And so the church is in desperate need of sound doctrine even just at the base levels. The fact that heresy has crept so deep that over half of so-called professing Christians would deny the deity of Christ is really quite extraordinary. And the purpose of our John study is so that we can combat this heresy that would deny Jesus' deity and even combat doubts that may even enter in our own hearts with the truth of Scripture. So with that in mind, turn with me now to John chapter 6 because that's where we're picking it up from the last time we left it. We closed out John 5 last time. Now, John 6, we're presented again with a sign. A sign that points us to the reality that Jesus is God. A sign is John's word for miracle throughout his gospel because that's the purpose of miracles. They serve as signs to testify to Jesus' deity. And now John 6 presents us with a very familiar sign in the life of our Lord Jesus. Chances are that you've that you know it, or you've at least heard of it, and that's because it's the feeding of the 5,000. The event when Jesus miraculously and instantaneously creates food out of nothing, and he distributes it to 5,000 men. And interestingly enough, Aside from the resurrection, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. The only one. And I believe that's due to the sheer size of this miracle. Out of all the miracles we have recorded in the life of Jesus, it's the one that involves the most amount of people. And really, it's called the feeding of the 5,000 because there were 5,000 men there. But Matthew sheds light that there wasn't just 5,000 men involved, but 5,000 men plus women and children. And so there could have easily been anywhere from 15,000 to 20,000 people that made up this crowd who Jesus miraculously creates food for. And so this is a miracle on an enormous scale. It's a miracle on an impossible scale. And we'll see that as we study the text. And so let's begin now by reading it, and then we'll get into our study of it, starting from verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 14. We read, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on, an, on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to, to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, 
There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. We'll stop our reading now. Now I've separated this text into four parts so that we can look at the deity of Christ under four headings. The four headings are the people, the problem, the provision, and the purpose. The people, the problem, the provision, and the purpose. We'll use those four headings as a framework for our study this morning. And the purpose for our study this morning is so that our faith is strengthened in the reality that Jesus is God in human flesh. Because this miracle, just like all the other miracles Jesus did, testify to that very fact. So let's begin with the first one, the people, taking verse 1 and 2 to start. We read, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So our text begins with the statement, After these things... Now, after these things doesn't necessarily mean that immediately after chapter 5, this event took place. It simply means that in the order of things, the events in chapter 6 took place after the ones in 5. And if we flick back to uh, chapter 5, verse 1, we read that the event in chapter 5 centered around an unnamed feast of the Jews. And as we read earlier, in chapter 6, verse 4, this event is at the Passover, or shortly before the Passover. So depending on what that unnamed feast of the Jews was in chapter 5, there could have been anywhere from six months to a year between the events recorded in this chapter and the previous chapter. If the unnamed feast was the Feast of Tabernacles, there would have been a six-month gap. If the unnamed feast was Passover... In chapter 5, then there's a whole year between the chapters. And I just note that because that's helpful to our understanding that that explains how Jesus' popularity seems to skyrocket between the two chapters. There has been at least six months of his name spreading throughout the land of Israel since the last time uh, we were with him in John's account. Now verse 2 states that a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs which he was performing on the sick. So throughout this six month to a year period, Jesus' name has been spreading throughout Israel because of the miracles he's doing. Namely those who he's healing of diseases and sicknesses. And so his popularity has just been growing and growing and growing. And on this particular day, everybody seems to be caught up in the hype of Jesus. 
the miracle worker. They're all wanting a bar of him. They're all on the Jesus train. 5,000 men plus women and children are all trying to receive something from Jesus. And we know it's almost Passover time because of verse 4. So the people would have been congregating anyways to make their annual trip to Jerusalem. And so it's amongst this and all the public attention on Jesus that this massive crowd forms and they're following him. So now verse 3 states that Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the other gospels writers fill in details surrounding this event and we won't read them simply for the sake of time, but to fill in to fill in some details as to what they do say about this event. Event. Mark and Luke record that just prior to uh, this happening, the disciples had just been out on a mission trip, and Jesus was trying to take them to a secluded place to rest. But the crowds just wouldn't let them go. They were following them everywhere. Mark says that the people were literally running after Jesus. And Matthew and Mark both record that when Jesus looked up and saw such a large crowd following him, he felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. And he began to even heal their sick there. And also... All the synoptic gospel writers state that this event took place in a desolate place and it was getting late in the evening. So there's a few details there that help fill, up, fill out our understanding of what's going on. Jesus and his disciples were simply trying to find a place to rest. They were in a secluded place trying to withdraw from the crowds, but the crowds were running after them. Jesus looks at them with compassion and after ascending on top of a hill, our translation says mountain, but it would be what we consider a hill, he starts teaching them and healing their sick, and it appears as though he was doing this for most of the day because now it's getting late in the evening. And if you want to read the other accounts in your own time, you can. You'll find them in Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, and then also Luke chapter Nine. Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9. But you have to read that in your own time. But if we read now verse 5 of John's account with those details in mind, it says, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And so we've got a large crowd. And large is really understated it's a massive crowd probably 15,000 people wanting Jesus it's getting late and because of the rush of the day and everybody trying to get to Jesus they've all seemed to jump on the Jesus bandwagon as quickly as they could and Jesus out of compassion he's teaching them he's healing their sick now with all of this excitement going on and all this taking place most of the day it appears that nobody thought to grab food They would have all just been swept up in the moment. And this would have happened just so fast. And in the mad dash of it all, the crowds gathering and everyone trying to get close to him, they were literally running after him, that they forgot about food. Now with such a large crowd in an isolated place getting late, no food, we have a problem. 
And this leads us to our second heading, the problem. How in the world are these people going to be fed? In Mark's account, he records for us that the disciples have a solution to the problem and that's just send them away. Let them get their own food. But Jesus has another idea. And by the way, this has all been orchestrated. This is on the divine timetable that has been set out by the Father for Jesus' earthly ministry. This wasn't some spur-of-the-moment idea. This event is intentional to testify to his deity. So Jesus turns and says to Philip, where are we going to get bread for these people? Think about it. Where are we going to get bread? And Jesus isn't asking because he doesn't know. Verse 6 records this. He was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And so watch Jesus' purpose in asking Philip. He's getting him to see the impossibility of the situation. Come on, Philip, what do you think? How can we buy bread for all these thousands of people? And Philip says, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Now, a denarius was one day's pay, so 200 denarii would amount to eight months' worth of wages. Philip is saying that not even eight months' worth of wages would be enough to feed these guys, not even just a little, for everybody to get something. And he's recognizing just the impossible situation that is before them. The crowd is just simply too big. We don't have the money, nor do we have the resources. Even if we did have the money, where would we find a place that would sell us eight months' supply of bread? And even if that happened, everyone would only get a little. We have a problem. The problem is that it's impossible to feed these guys. You can't feed them by natural means. Then Andrew, who by the way, had been sent out with the other disciples to see if there was any food among the crowd. They say, Simon Peter's brother said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And so, Andrew, the start of his statement sounds optimistic. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And I mean, these guys had already seen his water into wine miracle. They had already witnessed healings. If their faith was stronger... In Jesus, Philip and Andrew could have both said to him, it's impossible, but we've seen you perform miracles. You can do something. But they don't. Andrew finishes in sentence, but what are these for so many people? He sees the hopelessness of the situation as well. All we have is a little boy's lunch. And so verse 10, Jesus says to them, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And so after allowing the disciples, testing them to see what they see, and they can see the hopelessness and the, the sheer impossibility of the situation of feeding these guys, Jesus takes charge. Have the men sit down. 
And I love the detail John adds, now there was much grass in the place. That's just a detail of an eyewitness. Only an eyewitness would record that. And we know it's Passover time, Passover's in the spring, and their calendar, so the grass would have been growing. And so John, when thinking back to this event, remembers that there was just much grass where they were. Now, all the people sit down, 5,000 men plus women and children, and um, in Matthew's account, he records that they all sit down in about groups of 50 uh, to 100. And now what's going to happen after they're all seated, after Jesus takes charge of the impossible situation. Verse 11, the provision. The provision. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. Jesus takes the food that Andrew found, gives thanks to God for the little boy's lunch, and then he starts distributing more food than the little boy gave him. Where did the food come from? This is a miracle. He's creating it out of nothing. And his disciples are distributing it. Now, it's not as if he just creates eight months' supply of food for the people in one instant, like that, and it just falls. He's creating it, and his disciples are distributing it. The other Gospels record records here he distributed to those who were seated, but he was distributing it to them through his disciples. And this is just clear evidence that he is the creator. He's created God in human flesh because he can create substance. He can create something, food, out of nothing. He's creating food out of nothing for the thousands of people to eat. Now the miracles of scripture tend to be so understated and with the way it's written, it's almost like, where's the miracle? You could almost just read over it. Because there's no big show, there's no cloud of smoke, there's no words, there's no hocus-pocus type stuff that Jesus does to make the food appear. He just gives thanks, then he starts handing more food out to the people. And this is a miraculous display of provision that proves that he's God, because only God can create Something out of nothing. And now I find this miracle to be very similar to his one back in chapter 2, the creating of wine. Not only because both miracles are understated, but just like the water into wine, he asked men to participate. He asked them to fill the stone pots with water in chapter 2. And then here, Matthew records that he's distributing this food through his disciples and he was handing it to them and they were giving it to the crowds. He didn't need to do that. He's God. He could have just miraculously created the food, distributed it to the men and women and children who were seated there himself. It could have just appeared. 
but he doesn't. He uses men to distribute it to the crowd. And that just shows God's way of working with and relating with human beings. He could easily do the things that he delegates us to do, but he wants us to participate in what he's doing. An example of this would, would be the, the Great Commission, the preaching of the gospel. God doesn't need us as if he's incapable of doing it, but he delegates it to us so that we can be a part of what he's doing in the world, saving men. And then he blesses us for it. It's similar here. He didn't need the disciples to do anything, but he chooses to involve them. And such is God's desire to have relationship. And similar as well uh, to the water and to wine, at the wedding, this it was the best wine. And here, instead of Philip's observation of everyone just getting a little, all the people ate as much as they wanted. His provision was sufficient that they all ate until they were satisfied. They were all stuffing themselves on Jesus' miraculous bread and fish. Verse 12 and 13, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. When they were filled, all the people there were filled, satisfied. They didn't get a little. They got as much as they wanted. And then there were 12 baskets left over, enough for the 12 disciples. What an amazing miracle this is. A miraculous display of provision, an undeniable creative miracle that thousands, tens of thousands of people participated in. And even though the text is clear that there were at least 5,000 men there who witnessed this miracle, who participated in this miracle, and they were just as amazed as any of us would be. That's clear from the following verses, and we'll get there in a sec. But even though the nature of this event is clear that it's only possible through a divine act, there has been assault after assault on this biblical text to try and explain it away in a natural way and deny that there was ever a miracle through the hands of Jesus. I just want to share two of them with us. The first and probably the worst of all the theories is this, that Jesus prior to this event had stored loaves and fishes in a nearby cave and as the people had been following Jesus, he led them to the opening of this cave and there he had the people sit down and much like a magician, he had long flowing sleeves and his disciples were located in the cave and they formed somewhat of a bucket line from the supply of food and threw a slit up the back of Jesus' flowing robe and there he was distributing the food. And this whole thing 
was just a deception. He wasn't creating food out of nothing. He was distributing already stored food to the crowd. And it was all just a big hoax. He was just delivering food through his loose, flowy sleeves. To me, that seems harder to believe than natural miracle. <laughs> the second theory on this text, and this one seems to be more popular amongst naturalists who would deny the miracle of Jesus, and it goes like this, that after Jesus had taught them that day, it was late, the people were tired and were hungry, and so Jesus had the disciples go into the crowd to see who had food and and who hadn't had food, and they discovered that some had food, but some didn't have food. And so when that information was relayed back to Jesus, Jesus, instead of miraculously creating food, he told the multitude that whoever bought food must share with those who didn't. And so the true miracle that happened on this evening wasn't that Jesus provided food for everyone, but that everybody just shared their lunch. It was a miracle of a shared lunch. And as nice as that may sound to our PC friends who just wants the world to get along, this theory has no capacity to, to explain how all the people ate until they were satisfied because the problem with sharing your lunch is that you don't get your full lunch. It's divided. Nor does it explain the people's response in verse 14. When the people saw the sign which Jesus had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. That's a messianic title. These people, during and after they had eaten, recognized something miraculous about what just happened. And matter of fact, verse 15 states that they wanted to try and take him by force and make him their king. And now how this response from the people um, could possibly be explained by that of a shared lunch, it's not logical. What do they want him to be king of? The king of sharing? Why would they try and take him by force and make him king? And so this leads us into our fourth and final heading for this morning. We've looked at the people, the problem, the provision, and now the purpose. The purpose of this miracle is simple. We're to recognize, as the people recognize, that an act as such as this can only be done through a miraculous circumstance. And if somebody's performing miracles, then that person must be divine through this. Now, we've touched on before, sure, the apostles performed miracles, but they did so all in the name of Jesus. They weren't testifying to themselves. They were all testifying that their power came through their Saviour. Now, 
The purpose of this miracle is, as John said, it's a sign, a sign pointing us to what? A sign points you to something. What's it pointing us to? It's pointing us to his identity. After such a miraculous event that the people took part in, they're now without excuse to deny who he is. Especially with it being Passover time, their minds would have been heightened to their nation's history, coming out of Egypt and the slavery and then the wilderness, how God miraculously provided food for them in the wilderness. Jesus here, miraculously providing food during the Passover season, is declaring to them that he is the one that this season is all about. Just as God supplied them food in the wilderness, and so he's miraculously providing food to point to his identity, to point to who he is. And as we progress through this chapter, we'll see how the crowd did recognize the sign and who he was, but they were selfish and only wanting more food. They accepted the miracle, they accepted the sign, but they didn't want him, nor did they want his message, and they desert him by the end of this chapter. And he even declares to them, he is the bread of life. And still they reject him, and they're without excuse for that. They should have embraced him for who he was. And so it is the same with us today. We're without excuse if we choose to reject Jesus Christ. He is God who took on human flesh. We're to embrace him for who he is. And this miraculous event just simply demonstrates that truth. And this is what we learnt back in John 5, didn't we? John 5.36, where he says, The testimony I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father sent me. They're evidence of who he is. And then Jesus' statement in John 10 Verses 37 to 38, where he says, If you do, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. He's done the works. He's doing the works. And so we have a responsibility to believe. We must recognize who Jesus is, even if it's simply for the sake of the works. And you know, all throughout Jesus' ministry, no one ever denied his miracles. Not even his enemies denied them. They were just too widespread and there were too many. There were too many eyewitnesses to deny them. You couldn't. And they're there to serve as evidence 
that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God who became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the purpose. And so now the one foundational question I have to ask to serve as an application for us and this is the most important question in the entire world. Ask yourself, do I believe? Do I believe that Jesus is God? Because folks, there is no other conclusion you could possibly come to with the history and records and evidence surrounding the life of Jesus. We're without excuse and we're to place our faith in Jesus and embrace him for who he is. Now if you don't believe, I just my prayer for you is that you'd get on your knees and ask God for the faith to believe because the Bible also teaches that we in our natural state are dead and blind in our sin to spiritual truths. But only a fool would deny the deity of Christ. And it's not because of the evidence that the evidence doesn't stack up that he would deny it. It's because of the sin in his own heart that he would deny it. And so if you don't believe, folks, can I tell you, please, <coughs> beg God until you do believe. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your life, your ministry. We thank you so much for the clarity of your word. And Lord, we declare as your church that we believe. That's why we're here. Others reject, others deny. But Lord, we believe. And we thank you for granting us this faith that we can put in you. And Lord, now that we believe, we pray that we would live lives that honour you. Because it's not the end. Lord, that's the beginning when you grant us faith to believe and now a lifelong journey of obeying who you are. We embrace you, Christ. We thank you so much. We thank you that even this miracle is deeper meaning to it that we'll get into the next weeks of a spiritual meaning that you satisfy us and that you are the bread of life in this physical demonstration that you did amongst that massive crowd just points to that reality. And so we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.